You're listening to an Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I'd like to welcome you all here today. Start, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we sit today, here on the beautiful banks of the mighty Burrung, the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. And uh, we've got a pretty star-studded Melbourne Royalty Club panel today. Christo Gillard, over in the uh, red shirt there. From London to Lilypad, OG, DJ, interior designer, fashion, impresario, and the guy who probably handed Keith Haring the paintbrush down on Chapel Street before he painted the BMW in the 80s. Uh, we've got Georgina O'Connor, the proprietor and designer of Melbourne's hottest inner city music bar, sitting uh, atop of Burke Street at Angel Music Bar. We've got Simona Castricum, musician, performer, Melbourne icon. Simona's seen a fair share of nightclubs across the years. And uh, Melbourne's first and foremost an architect, curator of Design Week and Melbourne's longest serving club kid, Dr. Timothy John Moore to my left. So today we'll be talking about nightclubs as a melting pot of creativity and community from the design down to the outfits. Clubs have always been a hotbed for creativity where dreams are turned into reality and the concepts are brought to fruition through a supportive network, community network spanning music, fashion and counterculture and allowing people a safe space to find their true expression, allowing them to celebrate the difference in a supportive space with endless boundaries. My name's Andy Frost. Sorry, I'm used to doing podcasts and radio. So, yeah, forgive me if I stutter. I don't have the, you know, editing skills when I do it live. Um, <laughs> so I guess to sit, set the scene, Christo, you are not from Melbourne. You came here in when? Um, Mid-80s. 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 So what was... Melbourne like in the mid-80s? Um, I don't know. If you look, I remember asking some guy many years ago in uh, Melbourne, I said, man, there's a lot of nightclubs here. And someone made a point that in early mid-80s, there were more nightclubs in Melbourne than there was in the whole of Los Angeles, which was kind of interesting because of the boom from the 70s and the 80s. But the early 80s, well, I don't know, inflation was built, which goes back to Roundwood Marsh. So the beginning of inflation and many other clubs were about. Um, Melbourne was buzzing and different. It was different. Uh, there were big spaces and they were big to fill. And believe it or not, there was less people but more people in nightclubs. Yeah, I think Melbourne had the highest number of bars per capita for a long time. That was the, the statement that always got thrown around. Um, so, coming from London, like it would have been a bit of a fast difference arriving in Melbourne. What, what were the main kind of... Well, nightclub scene in uh, England was very different, you know, uh, when you arrived here because there were big clubs. There were like massive venues or either smaller venues. Music had a big play on what was popular then and uh, in the late 70s, it was new wave, uh, thrash and punk or whatever you could uh, want to call it. But at the same time, I think back then, you've got to remember in London in the 70s and 80s, you could go out and see the Sex Pistols, Stevie Wonder, Al Green, Annetta James, all in the one night for like 10 quid. So I suppose the influence of nightclubs... Uh, the nightclubs were big. They were different. They weren't really so mad on decor. It was very much about the music, the acts. Uh, the gay evolution probably going to Ian Levine and the beginning of Heaven and a place called the Sombrero Club in London, which was the breaking ground at that time from Vivian Westwood, Malcolm McLaren and the whole movement which got together there was... That was a melting pot, probably more like Paradise Garage uh, in, 
you know, because England was still quite homophobic, I must admit, I can't, that's what I really loved about Australia at the time because the gay scene was really, it was really niched into one area. It wasn't so open as, whereas in Melbourne it was fantastic. Everyone mixed and uh, the whole uh, illusion of club scene from one thing to another. I mean, design, I think design and evolution came as time moved on, you know, uh, I mean, with Malcolm McLaren, uh, when they first met, took the pistols. I remember a funny story I was thinking about the other day. Uh, I remember I was working in London and, and I looked in the window and I saw a pair of van shoes and, uh, and you know, and I wanted to go skateboarding because I skateboarded and I went into the guy and I said, I'll take the shoes. And he said, and I tried them on and they were like six quid and he said, he said, uh, have a good time skating. I said, sod that, I'm going to go and see the Sex Pistols. So the evolution of what was going on in club scene, which, you know, it, the difference between that and Melbourne, Melbourne had bigger spaces and uh, it, was a, it was a virgin in my eyes because whatever was happening in England, being the acid house movement or the whole evolution, you know, funk and soul and all those movements were relevant in London in Shaking Finger Pop and certain parts of London, the Jake Jamaican movement. There were so many different mu movements in music which basically had a lot of effect on the kinds of clubs that, uh, you know, warehouses came in, you know, like warehouses were the new nightclubs, you know, like aeroplane hangers and things like that because raving and phones came out and people could do those, you know, SMS and a, a million people could turn up raving. So the raving and the acid house movement was a big, big movement, which did explode here. I mean, the Docklands, the Docklands was on fire here in Melbourne because a lot of it had closed down and any night of the week you could really see any kind of act back then from Derek May to young Derek to all the great... Uh, DJs and techno producers, uh, it was all happening at the docks, which probably really made a big change uh, to the Melbourne nightclub culture because it took away the numbers. Hence, smaller bars and new evolutions started breaking out, like uh, different clubs were different, you know, the Razor Club and all these other kinds of new clubs that had started, which were really like, you know, a big part of all of the melting pot of London, if you wanted to be there, you could kind of get the whole lot. And I don't know, uh, you know, that kind of movement, the b-boy movement in New York and everything, what was happening with Kenny Shaft and the whole evolution of Keith Herring. Of course, Keith Herring did come here and he was hanging around the hardware club and he was here for a while. I vaguely remember, I think my mate Colin Breeley. Uh, had uh, one of those Carmen gear motor cars uh, with, you know, and it used to get around it. Back in those days, people had big cars and Cadillacs with no rego, no insurance. There were no police here, really. You just get around in these cars and just do whatever you want. But I remember my, I came down the road and I saw my mate's car and I go, shit. He goes, yeah, Keith Herring come out and just bomb a complete car while I was in it. And then he went up into, uh, I think, the hardware club and started doing work there. But I suppose that evolution of that kind of music from, from design to culture to pop art, the whole evolution of kind of like uh, Clayton in New York, that kind of movement, the evolution of Africa Bombarda and all that tribal uh, hip-hop stuff which went with Malcolm McLaren and go, you know, Buffalo girls go around the outside. It was very much Buffalo go, girls go around the outside here in Melbourne, let me tell you, back in that day. So uh, Face magazine was rampant all over the world. So people in Melbourne, it used to take two weeks or three weeks to, for the mag to get here. So you're always two or three weeks behind the rest of the world. But that had a big subculture uh, influence to people and the drug movement and the whole change of that kind of really had a, a big play on uh, on the the scene of club culture for me. You know, I think that uh, looking back, uh, and it's interesting to look back because I do DJ and 
looking at maybe when I first started DJing here in Melbourne, I was like astonished, like the first time anyone asked me to get up and play in a club and it was like the size of this building. There was 80s buildings. You'd remember that, Frosty. And all these, like kids today, they start in a coffee shop or they start on small decks in the bedroom or in, the, in front of the mirror. But you kind of, uh, I don't mean to be mean, but, um, but that culture, you know, it was, it was an evolution that did change. I mean, I worked, uh, I worked very much, the biggest project I ever worked in music evolution here was the design and creativity of Freakazoid Nightclub, which was the biggest gay, uh, gay mixed nightclub in the Southern hem Hemisphere at that time. And my business friends and long-time friends, Vincent Paul, with the Freakazoid All-Stars, we created Freakazoid. And Freakazoid was everything went. It was crazy. And my dearest friends, uh, when they backed business, and they did back me, and they still back me today, uh, they don't really muck around. So when we created Freakazoid, we were into Detroit, and we were bringing every Friday night, maybe for seven years, a fresh new DJ from Detroit or America around the world. So with that, the evolution of design uh, and the creativity, I think it's really funny um, to look back as being a designer and a creative. When I was young and I mixed up with Ishmael and some of my great team that I work with, and, uh, you know, the budgets were peanuts, you know. I mean, most people today spend more money on a pair of shoes and an iPhone and a pair of sunglasses than we did on the entire budget for a club. And uh, the, the, whole, the whole thing was highly, highly different. And the Freakazoid was an amazing experience where it enabled us to take it to the limit. And uh, me and my, my friends, we really did like taking things to the limit with club life. Freakazoid was the greatest club I'd ever been anywhere in the world and I've played on over 120 international shows and whatever. I mean, I've played and I've been in a lot of nightclubs. Can't you see? <laughs> but um, but Melbourne, uh, Melbourne today, you know, from then and now, the 80s and that uh, evolution. But the thing is, what I say is about budget. Today, in the old days, you know, a budget would be a load of kooks who could play with some mirrors and maybe animate different stuff on walls and uh, they never really worried so much about the spaces of how it worked. It's, I mean, we started having, you know, really amazing like funk and disco DJs playing in the toilets, set up sound system at Freakazoids. I mean, Freakazoid, I remember one time we had a cowboy and Indian night and uh, cow, uh, we had cowboys and Indians riding through the club on horses. So you wouldn't be able to do that today, you'd get locked up. But, um, yeah, I mean, that whole uh, evolution and change is, you know, I suppose they were the breeding grounds, that they were the, the, the think tank for places like Revolver. Revolver and all these other clubs for me and all the bars that came after it, uh, it was a place that really, it, nothing was going on in London. What was really going on is there wasn't anything really that good in London from all my friends and people we were DJing with, and everyone, like everyone would say, you know, no matter who it is, DJ Spinner, Kenny Doak, Gonzalez, I can name drop until the cows come home. But uh, whoever those people that were coming fresh out of New York, all over the world, Paris, Italy, were implying that the club and the bubble that we created here uh, was wild. And I, 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 looking back on it, I must say that England and Europe was quite homophobic, homophobic, let me say that looking back. Whereas this place just, well, like Sydney, you know, Sydney, I did a lot of work in Sydney and worked around the Mardi Gras and create, I did DJ the early days for the Mardi Gras and different things like that. There was a different, there was a different feeling between Sydney and Melbourne. But at the same token of time, I don't know, I'm, I'm from Melbourne, you know, and... I always thought that what was working for me was just really this place. And I think it's true, obviously, with Melbourne being such an export now to the rest of the world as a musical city. Um, you know, like a lot of 
DJs and kids that I kind of grew up with and that were playing around the clubs and that are now overseas headlining stages and people still look to Melbourne as for relevance. And I think, um, you know, obviously there's, there is still some relevant things going on here i.e. your bar Georgina, Angel, um, and plenty of other things. But I liked how you talked about the, the, the big and the small because um, I'm going to throw it to you now, Georgina. Um, obviously, you know, opening a bar that is smaller than this pavilion in the middle of Melbourne City is a bit of a challenge. Where did you find the inspiration and uh, kind of drive and, you know, direction to do such a crazy thing? I... I often ask myself the same thing <laughs> because it's something that, and just sitting here, I was you know, almost overwhelmed thinking, wow, what a journey. Like I've, uh, you know, met all of you over the years in like through fashion, through uh, clubs, you know, a lot of friends who are DJs, producers. And it's, this opportunity came up um, with my business partners to create this space and, uh, Really, it's just become, you know, such a... You know, that's, that's Maria. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Maria. Oh, journey. Yes. Yeah, it's a, like I, I feel a massive responsibility just to keep fighting for the space, you know, to, you know, be accessible for everybody. But the it has been, like last night was our first club night back since uh, all of the lockdowns and just seeing the combination of, you know, all sorts of people. That's what Angel is really all about is people feel comfortable there to be themselves uh, but also to, you know, mix with different scenes. It's not a, you know, a gay club or a queer club or a, you know, straight club. or It's just like there and, you know, the opportunity to see people being more accepting of each other in a space and getting along um, it is a tiny little space, but that means that we can represent more artists because, you know, we don't need to fill, you know, 600 people into a venue either. Um, yeah, it is, it's actually just such an honour to, like you said, like be the custodian of that space and, you know, Christo's been in there, just listening to that story right back. I was Thank like, you, it's her get up. <laughs> Yeah, I think maybe that's another way that when I'm drawn to this is I've always liked it, going out, out, having a space where you can dress up, dress a little different and, yeah. Can I ask, yourself? Can I ask a question mm. to George? Yeah, please. Yes. Um, can you talk about the design? Because you design the space or work with others to design the space and it has a particular ambience. So can you talk to that? Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Timothy. <laughs> Are you reading my questions? No. Uh, no, okay. I... Not yeah. used to not being in control. <laughs> it's about creativity, Frosty. It was. It was actually um, like I sat on the site and designed everything on site to the space, working in three D. But I designed it with Con Christopoulos over here, who is <laughs> my partner in the business and uh, a bit of a legend of hospitality, with about a dozen special venues around town but it was uh, between the two of us it was like a fight like it just a constant fight for what is right what will work and you know we had to deal with obviously sound acoustics etc but I think that it is quite a representation of Con's style some of that you know real quality uh, long-lasting beautiful um, materials with, I've got the sort of techno edge uh, on that as well. So that's why I think it does work in there. And it still is actually a building site. It's not finished, which I think most good art is like that as well. So Totally. Timothy, speaking of... And it's got really budget, good sound. It has got really good sound. Function one, you get what you pay for. Um, you used to be, or you still are, you used to be part of a party called John and Trough, which were known for kind of going into unusual spaces and transforming them into completely different universes, I guess you could say. Um, how did you go about that? Yeah, so I co-founded Trough with Nick Demopoulos, who still runs the party. Um, the party's happening in a few weeks in London. Actually, he's flying over there. So we started that in mid-late 2000s, I think, and worked with different nightclubs around Melbourne, but in particular, Inflation Nightclub. And I think Inflation's quite an important nightclub in Melbourne, 
particularly from 1976 when it opened and it was really facsimile of, I guess, New York discos, but then you mentioned in 86 when Built Modern took over and made it a really special space. And I think many different architects and parties have kind of added to that layer. So when we went into the club, um, Nick and I were really scared that people weren't going to come on the first night of the party. So we started to do elaborate kind of installations on the the dance floors just so it looked really busy. Um, So over time that got more chaotic and if you know Nick's style, it became quite an extravagant fortress on the dance floor. So often using um, found materials um, like cardboard, um, balloons. Um, One of our favourite tricks was um, using the blow dryers to uh, blow up garbage bags. Um, which was also a fire risk for the club at the time. Um, but that, yeah, so that kind of grew over time and became a bit nonsensical for us. And we mainly focused on inflation, but used other clubs around Melbourne and also the party in Berlin, Amsterdam, Athens and London too. It's interesting, like, with such a kind of decor-heavy vibe, like, where does the difference between the, the actual venue, where the venue's built, and then the decor coming in make a you know, kind of impact on the party? Do you think it's important that you need to have a kind of good structure before you get in there and cover it with toilet rolls? I th- <laughs> Literally. And, and I, think, I think for us it was important to create a different type of space, a space that's unexpected, because I think there's a potential in a nightclub space as a space to project alternative futures for people, um, even if it's simply just through a different decor and, or through temporary architecture, and that goes through the history of nightclubs in the 20th and 21st century, you know, architects experimenting within these spaces. So definitely we wanted to people feel different, out of this world, together, connected, and definitely when you're... Um, Club nights change every night of the week. Um, you know, inflation's had so many different parties from gay to winter days. It's very, um, very was here at all of them. Yeah. So for us, it was really important to have a sense of identity for our party through the architecture. Yep. And um, there was another great party, or place, party place, Mechanoid at the public office. Public office used to be a bit of a blank canvas. I'm going to bring you in here, Simona. A, a pony. And was it a pony pony. as well? Pony, which is now Boney, which is now Cherry. Yeah. Okay, so um, I guess somewhere like the public office, you could compare it to somewhere like, say, the Paradise Garage in New York, maybe, as far as it's just a kind of empty space that's kind of been there and, you know, had uh, people could come in and impose their kind of brand or their their style upon it. Um, Simona, you uh, used to frequent those places like Mechanoid and have been a fan of, uh, of that kind of new wave goth style for some time now. Yeah, I would just turn up to raves wearing black, but like it would be like renegade soccer tops and Doc Martens and black cargo pants and just be trying to find the queer goths at the rave, of which there wasn't too many, but um, I just let everyone else wear all the bright colours. But now with all the... Um I guess I call it the billyization of Billy Elliotization of uh, goth and fetish wear, True. Um, wow. where you can kind of see like twelve-year-old kids walking around with dog collars and stuff. Like, do you think it's going the right direction, or how's the goth scene feel about it? Uh, Are you allowed to comment on behalf of the goth scene? No, I mean I wouldn't. I mean I I wouldn't comment on behalf of any scene. My goodness. But, I, like, I remember the very first club that I ever designed. And it's like I just finished my PhD and it was like one of the last experiences that I wrote about. But basically, like, I was in Geelong, like, like studying architecture. And, like, I wanted to design a space. And so, like, I ran a, this architecture ball and I just let all the mainstream stuff happen upstairs. But then I took over the downstairs bar and I've walked into this downstairs bar and right in the middle of the downstairs bar is this white ute with decks in it and it's like sawn in half. And in Geelong, me, yeah. I just looked at it and just went, oh my God, that says B&S ball, like Bachelor and Spencer's ball, which is like, you know, the height of like Australian cishet culture, like patriarchal culture. And I'm just like, wow, I, that is like giving me like, you know, I'm triggered. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah, here? how did you overcome it? So, okay, so what I did was I, with the consent of the venue, which is very important. I um, got as much black builder's plastic as I could possibly find. And so I, I guess I took the club as my submissive because I was really into fetish and BDSM and yeah, at the time, you know, like it was a really great space for queering. It was a really great space for transing, I guess finding my own trans and queer identity. But so I wrapped the ute in 
builder's plastic and gaffer tape and PVC. And so I sort of took that as my submissive, I guess. And then, like, you know, clad the whole bar and, the, and all the walls floor to ceiling in, in, in PVC as if I was just sort of like, like it was like couture, you know. And um, so as I turned it into this sort of BDSM dungeon, you know, for one night only, you know, it's this sort of temporality, temporality of, of, of queer space, you know. So, but I guess like what I like to apply, I guess, when I am doing an intervention into space, whether it be the gigs that I put on or like whatever is like applying, I guess, these three ideas. Um, and I guess from a queer and trans point of view, it's like, how is this place safe? How does this place, I guess, exude a feeling of belonging? And, um, you know, and, and what's the sort of permanence of this? And, and, or, you know, and so we sort of talk about this idea of temporality. So it's like for, you know, for, you know, between like nine o'clock and 7 a.m., we can take over a space. And I think for queer and trans people, like, we don't really get that opportunity. Like, we always have to, like, move and hop and move and hop. And, you know, we don't get to, like, settle for a long time. So, um, yeah, I try and bring those qualities to spaces, um, you know, that I've got some kind of influence on. Do you think that that's something that we can improve on or, like, find more space for those things to become more permanent? Or is that the brilliance of them that they are very... Well, I think if the city of Melbourne and when everyone else stops taking our licences away, I think that would be a really good... That's the end bit. We'll start... Well, we've got a whole bit about... Uh, um, Yeah, okay. Well, you know, like... But, and you know, but I guess, yeah, I mean... um, Oh, like... uh, Well, that's sort of my answer to the question. (laughs) Christo, you've designed many uh, venues. Are there any kind of, you know, key factors that you take into consideration when setting up a space or, like, you know, kind of designing a vibe or...? I don't know. That's a big question. I mean, I forgot that I did all that stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do that. Um, I suppose a brief is when I work for my clients. I don't really work for my clients. I work for my clients' clients. So you kind of tailor things to the market that really work. And I suppose maybe if I go back to some of my early works in Melbourne, being the Gershwin Room at the Espinard, which was inevitably was a, a rock and roll venue for many years and uh, me and my, my, my great friends who I worked with, who I mentioned before, uh, the evolution of doing the Gershwin Room was an evolution, which is quite interesting. Uh, that space was not just to be about rock and roll, it was about a whole new evolution of music and my mate here, cats in the audience, and that whole evolution of change with food. Uh, it was a rock and roll place that had, you know, a huge history. But we were about to change that history because we created the Gershwin Room. To, it was a 450 room and we turned it to 750 and we broke the avalanches in there, which was uh, pretty amazing because you could be like working there all day and it was took, it was a whole, you know, sort of what do you call it, heritage renovation thing and the vision. I've always been like the head designer of what I do and my bosses control me and go yes, no and and generally have a, a great vision of what they want and to be able to work with client and yourself often sometimes takes friendship and trust and that's what really enables, uh, if you've got to be all on the same page, pretty simple, design creativity without selling liquor, there is no bar. There is no club. So if you put, you take a four metre, we put a four metre or a five metre bar in the Gershwin room that could cater with six to seven hundred people at one time. That was evolutionary. So that's what makes a good business and that's what makes all kinds of different things. Uh, Spaces, uh, design, concept. Well, it's all about the vision of what it is really. I mean, it's about keeping, I don't know, I suppose another building or something you may have known, I was, I was involved in uh, Itchy Knee Group and creating the, that biz, big building in Brunswick Street, Itchy Nana, and I have been involved in design most of my life, but it's sort of not really my main profession anymore, I kind of, but I, I still uh, recognise what, what a go track, what makes a place work, and whether it's sound and interaction and sometimes small spaces work better than big. I mean, 
it's like uh, and music and different things has a lot to do with that. You know, like Georgina's place, for instance, there in the city. You know, it's got really spanking sound system, really good sound. So it can it can push you out of the top room downstairs, and the sound can actually keep the place moving. And so, you know, I suppose movement has got a lot to do with design. Uh, what do I think design is? Uh, design is all about colour, colour and movement and creating that ability. You know, I think a lot of people make a lot of uh, mistakes in design and I think some people overthink it. You know, that's probably why I don't really work in the industry that much anymore, God bless it. But um, I kind of, I think that the main parts is to be able to create, uh, you know, like I say, you design for, you don't design for you, you know, you don't, des you design for your clients' clients because they're the investors, they're the one with the money, they're the one that's taking the risk, not the DJ or five barman, you know, it's like business, a successful business is a successful business plan and you need it all to work within that. So if you've got an amazing business plan, don't fuck around with the design too much. Just stick a few things here, there and there and, and just do it. Whereas I've seen people pull bars out and change things around to, to suit the new style of music and, and they just, they just take the till away. And unfortunately, design and creativity in these places is about money and will always be about money if you're in, if you're in the business. And, you know, uh, that's what I can say, really. I'd, I'd like to say something about that just on top of that is um, exactly that like, the space that we've got at Angel, which is what I'm getting at, it, it really it was designed as a, a gift because it is very hard to make money in a nightclub where there's a small bar and you're selling beers. And so that's why people have to keep fighting for these events. <coughs> Excuse me. So... The, the room upstairs, there's, again, you can't sort of over-invest in design, so I don't know who has been there, but it is, we did nothing to it. We it's just painted it's it black. It's a black box, yeah. yeah. It's a black box. We did insulate for sound, and that's um, got like a diffuser on the back wall, but really, otherwise, uh, a few hours before the first party up there three years ago, like just ran, what are we going to do? We're having this club night up there. We have the sound system for it. It was actually a strictly vinyl party after the Duke Street block party, which we also hosted their after party last night for the first time. So it feels great. But we just, I went to, in an Uber on the day and got the biggest mirror ball I could find in a spotlight and got up a ladder like four hours before and just hung the mirror ball. And that is, you know, one design feature that just does unite everyone. Some people love or hate the look and we do pull it down. You can have lasers instead, but it's interesting what, uh, like you were saying, colour and movement and the people, that's sort of more important. Um, and I've had people come say, oh, can I do an installation in the club, you know, dress it up. It's like just there's nothing up there. It's just a black box. I'm like, no, that's, that's the whole point. You can take on a different personality every night. Um, but also that, like you are saying, downstairs you can invest, you have a larger bar and that supports the club. And um, Yeah, it's genius because the moment you step in the door, you've got waiters and bar. So you've got this giant long bar. So no, no matter on the way in, you can get drinks in the six or seven places, go upstairs and get pissed, then come all the way down and go through about nine other cash tills and registers on the way out. It's very genius. You walk out, touching your pockets, going, let everything that go. That is clever. If you want to do a business, copy that. <laughs> um, I guess colour and lighting, or colour and, you know, movement as well. Lighting is a very important thing. Simona, you perform with glow-in-the-dark drumsticks. Oh, they're, they're sick. How important Except is the lighting? Except when I get my hair... So like, so, like, sometimes I, like, have to do... Well, like, I've been, I perform quite often in latex and in order to get that latex on, I have to be covered in lube. And I was, like, doing a show at Golden Plains and um, I was, like... Oh, I was, like, halfway through the third song and just, like, every... Like, the drumsticks, because they're, like... 
So they're like got they're like fluorescent. I've got fluorescent green ones and fluorescent orange ones, and they've got this like coating to them, and it's just not working against the lube on my hands. And so I've just got like stick flying out and stick flying out, which apparently is a great look. And then I like grab because I've just got like I'm like Stuart Copeland with all my sticks in the holster, and I'm just like grab another one, and there's all these fluorescent sticks flying in the room. Apparently it looks like lasers, but and then like at the end of the song, I'm just kind of like, wow, I can't hang on to these these drumsticks, my hands are so covered in lube. And like Onyx had bought, bought me all these drumsticks. I'm like, thanks Onyx for the fluorescent drumsticks. Like, they bought me all these ones for my birthday. But yeah, but like, it, it's just like, I don't know. It's like cheap tricks and value for money. It's like, you know, Smoke like Pink Floyd would be boring without lasers and like inflatable pigs and exploding beds, right? And I, you know, it's like, maybe I would be boring without like fluorescent drumsticks. And, and But like, even when I used to do my own shows like solo, I'm kind of like, okay, like, who am I as like a techno pop performer? What do I want to do as an audience member? Okay, I want to dance and I want to sing and I want to like rock out to the drums. And so I'm like, well, as a solo performer, that's all I have to do if I'm doing techno pop. But also, like, let's get some sick lasers behind me, like some cheap ass, like stuff from like the, the store. DJ. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've like two of those and a smoke machine. And so I'd have a smoke machine, like, and I'd just like whack up the smoke machine, like halfway through every track. And like that worked for about six years, just performing in like really, really small DIY, like queer like trans, like warehouse spaces, like in bookstores or in like places like Hugs and Kisses, you know, like, you know, and and so, yeah, that, you know, now I've got a band and, you know, and this, now I can, that sort of like helped me to understand how to bring techno pop and that Depeche Mode kind of vibe, like, like stadium techno, you know, like Depeche Mode 101 is like one of the most exciting like stories of like synth pop and techno pop, how they like bought it like through North America and they conquered Pasadena. And in the context of like, um, like, you know, like discophobia and like the disco sucks thing, you know, it's just kind of like, like Depeche Mode bought like techno like back to the stadium. And, and now the irony of like, Discophobia is like the disco's like back into like the main stadiums now, and it's sort of like well, we sort of like re, like we, we sort of like stuck it up like Come that racism circle. and that homophobia and that transphobia that started that, and now we're at Marvel Stadium, bitches. Definitely, you know? definitely feels like that. That's for sure. Um, Timothy, yes. <laughs> across your many years on dance floors across Melbourne, what's some of the? Can you think of any memorable? Moments, I maybe not from last night, but oh, that's actually from last week. Um, I, there's a club mus miscellaneous with which a lot of people go to. I feel like Grandpa Raver when I go there at the moment, but it's you know the older of Melbourne, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a club that's open during lockdown, and they have electronic performances there. But also um, starts at seven a.m. this morning and goes to one a.m. tonight. And I just find it's a really simple design, and it was really interesting hearing Georgina and Simona and Christo reflect in a way that I was thinking, yeah, what do you need when you want to design a nightclub? All you need is like three technologies: you need sound, you need light, you need good drugs, really. And that's really how you can design a nightclub. And Under the, the Melbourne influence. drug drought at the moment is fucked. <laughs> um, so, yeah, does design under the influence, I guess. Do you think that plays a part in, in nightclub culture? <laughs> um, definitely in our office we don't design under the influence. <laughs> I do. Splendid. It's always hard to remember what you've designed if you haven't written it down. Ketamine is a sick design tool. Yeah, but how do you actually like translate that into a 3D space? Come to Sync. So Sync that I did for Arts House is yep. actually, yes. it goes for half an hour and it's actually designed for ketamine. Amazing. <laughs> it is, and I, and I yeah, saw yeah. it on ketamine. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to build that. Yeah, I designed so much stuff on ketamine, but then I can never remember what I designed the next day. So it's a bit hard. Do you want to describe that? Because I went to that as well under the influence. Do you want to describe that? Okay, so I'm like, I do this drum circle, which is another Pink Floyd reference. And then like underneath me is like an asterisk, right? Which is like made of like three meter long string curtain. And like, I'm trying to reinterpret like, sorry, I'm standing up, but like the, the stage, I'm, I'm like, I want an intimate stadium thing. So we're performing in the round, we reject the stage, we reject the proscenium and all of that traditional way of performing. But then like above me is this like rotating, asterisk which is like is a three-dimensional thing it's just like all of this shit forming and then I'm working with Carla Zimbler who is like a sick like um 
a projection artist, uh, like she's just coming back from projecting stuff onto, um, you know, hillsides in Reykjavik for fuck's sake, like as you do, you know. And like I'm like, well, I want to work with someone like that. And they just project like all of this sick stuff onto the curtain. This curtain moves around, and it's just like this half an hour, like narrative of like electronic music and like it's like Phil Collins drums and like you know like like pseudo echo drums and like you know all of this sort of like electronic music going backwards and forwards you know so um and then but all the audience members are like sitting right down and there's some people on banana lounges like you know in the front so you're looking up in this to this thing and if you do a bump of ketamine like it's sick (laughs) Someone, someone came up to me at like at Duke Street yesterday. I was like, oh, you're that person that did sync. I saw that. It was so great. I'm like, next time I do it, do you want to swap? Because I want to sit down. You can play the drums. I want to sit down and watch that and have a time, you know? It's always hard for the performers, isn't it? I guess, um, yeah, you sort of talking about stadiums. Really. The word stadiums come up a few times and um, being in a pavilion. But um, coliseums, I think, sort of something, the big gladiatorial kind of element to nightclubs when you had those big clubs like Chasers or um, even in Inflation, not so much, but like, you know, clubs with that have the mezzanines and stuff like that around. Um, yeah, is that, you know, is, is that... Is the Metro. They, I mean, yeah, the Metro the is a perfect metro. example. That was my yeah. first, like, yeah. underage. Yeah. Like, when I was 14, they had a thing called Time. Yeah, mm. I went mm. and I used to go. Yeah. Mickey, Mickey, Mickey B. <laughs> and it, I mean... I was obsessed with, like, as a teenager, actually collecting all the flyers for the nightclubs. I could be 13, 14, but my whole bedroom wall was just tiled with... I had no idea what they were, but I just had this attraction. And then years later, I really was like, wow, is that just, like, manifestation or something when you had no idea? The vision board. Yeah, the vision... So important. Well, not even knowing, but it was like, yeah, I remember, like, Tunnel and, like, all the these places that, you know, in the, eight, the 90s were around. But Metro, time at Metro... You know, I, growing up, like, I did just want to run away, like, all the time. And I, going to that place, and it made me feel, you know, just it was exciting. You had, like, they were actually, like, like, we were all teenagers, but they were, like, gangs. They were, like, the homies and, you know, these ones. And there was, like, the the sluts and, you know, the, (laughs) like, then just, you know, the private school kids and all this. Such a mix. And... You know, I was obsessed, like, from there. And so, obviously, then that takes you through going out. But that place, like, the Metro, which sadly we watched it get demolished over the last few years, and it's just two doors away from uh, Angel. But that that feeling there of being, you know, up, like you said, on mezzanines, looking down on the dance floor, like, having the vantage points. And, um, you know, I, do we have anything like that left? <laughs> I'm not sure. It's yeah. I, What's our beat, I used to go to know? Juice Underage in Ringwood, and that was the same. Like you just had this kind of mezzanine Weren't around you there the night, last night? The night floor. Well, no, no, no. I was in a crater in, well, in Tatooine. I was. I mean, I was at Pitch a couple of weekends yeah. ago, and so like they did. They did like Thunderdome, like Mad Max Thunderdome, like as just all out of like um, you know like scaffolding, but it was like a soccer pitch with mezzanine and DJ at one end, and like just sand all the way through, and it was just oh. like. Two men enter, one man leaves, you know, so it's like... It definitely feels like pictures raising the bar for, you know, stage design and production decor, which is obviously such an important thing. You look at something like the Download Disco at Glastonbury where they do a complete set design, kind of, you know, build a city street in the middle of a field. Um, yeah, you the know, stages at Pitch was... Yeah, it definitely it feels like something that in the in the kind of festival world of the last 10 years really kind of went astray and wasn't really paid much attention to. And I think Lilypad, where Christo, you know, you guys used to do Big Day Out was something that was a massive kind of inspiration for that sort of style. But it's definitely important as far as sort of placing a place. And I think what you were talking about, Georgina, with the, the Metro and just having a nightclub as a community and being somewhere where people would come and meet on a weekly basis seems like something that's kind of gone... Now I don't know, like people I kind of. There wasn't the social media. Yeah, they don't have the opportunity to interact with. But I don't want to get nostalgic to say that you know clubs are on the way out or the. No, no, we haven't said that yet. <laughs> but so, like, but say with Miscellanea, it's like Miscellanea was like, like for for like queer First Nations, like trans, like POC, like that was like such a great thing that happened after lockdown and then you've got the council come along and just like overnight it's just like okay we're going to take away your Friday night all night license and it's like why why did you do that like, and and it's like so like 
all of like all the cis hets have got sick nightclubs, but it's like, well, what what have we got for like what have we got for queer and trans POC First Nations people? And like, why aren't you like working? Why isn't the council working to make make sure that we have those spaces so that so we can go out on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night and feel safe and feel like we belong because there's just nowhere else. I mean, Melbourne used to have such a weekly nighttime economy. Like, you know, you could go out any night of the week and hear anyone from any kind of realm and any genre. If you wanted, if there was something you were interested in, you could always find a club night that was hosting it. I know you guys do a fair bit of stuff at Angel Georgina. Um, but, yeah, it definitely feels like there isn't that kind of, you know, every night of the week urgency to, to clubbing or to... I guess even to acts that come out because you know that they might play at a festival and then they might play five more times before they leave. But what do you think? I'd really like to see people like not needing, like be having spaces like that. Like I'd love the, the club upstairs to be open seven nights a week, but without the impetus of you have to have this massive night and, you know, turn it into a monstrosity. But like we had a Wednesday night function that sort of, filtered off and using projection, like just having, like we do need like dark, dingy spaces as well to, you know, not, yeah, to to be a bit naughty, <laughs> that sort of thing. But also like sometimes like the contracts that are signed with overseas touring artists, like they don't actually allow for some of those artists to get booked at smaller clubs, like to smaller communities. And like, they're like, oh, they're on this, these ex exclusivities that they've got to play that festival, that festival and that official after party. But then they're playing all these like sick shows in like Canberra, Brisbane, Sydney, but in Melbourne, it's just like, you have to go into the festival, which for like some people it's like, that's cost prohibitive or it's unsafe actually to party in those spaces because you do get fetishized or you'll just would get would get hassled as well and it's just a bit like can like like how do the big promoters like give back to community like when they're like asking us to like like you know like look at their diversity riders and all that kind of stuff I'm like well like I'm investing in you like how are you investing back into the community I guess it's an interesting thing when you see kind of the big promoters um that kind of jump onto trends, I'm going to just call them trends, uh, of, of artists and stuff coming out and then it does become prohibitive. For, I mean, plenty of times I've brought artists out where I haven't been able to put them where I want because it's just cost prohibitive and, you know, obviously you've got to fund a tour or whatever. But it definitely, yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like now, you know, I, is there a responsibility for those artists to kind of write that sort of stuff into their contract or, you know, be able to have the well, freedom ultimately to Ultimately, it's up to, to the do. artists. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, I mean, there are some artists who are like, no, I don't give a shit. You just tell me where I want to play money, and it's yeah. cool. But it's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, it would be good for them to have the option to talk to local, like local promoters. It's a very tricky one. I've done a lot of work in bringing artists to Australia and, and stuff like that. And it's... um. Yeah, I mean, it is it is pretty hard. Not only your visa dictates where you can play and where you can perform and all that sort of stuff, there's there's all sorts of other politics in play. Public well. liability as well with a lot of these international acts. When we, you know, I was with the big day out for the whole, whole beginning to end, but there was always that problem as well that maybe it might sound wanky that maybe they didn't have enough money, public liability for Snoop Dogg if he wants to start doing helicopters on the decks. When you've got them on here, or when you bring these artists into the country, you've got to, you know, that one minute they're worth a dollar and next thing you know they're worth $60 billion. So the change in the contracts are really tricky for the big promoters who really bring a lot of people in at one time. But with the smaller acts, I think it's ridiculous because I think one time DJ Spinner came here, uh, brought him over from New York, and really, he was just signed to two friends of ours, you know, Paulie Main and, and Dean. And, you know, they couldn't, although he was here and he played one gig with them, sadly, they weren't enabled to play anywhere else because no one else wanted to put the money in for the air ticket and all the money they spent to bring them. So there's, once they're here is one thing, but just, some people just let it go and let people play and, and let it be, but... I don't know, it's pretty hard because you can see someone bring someone here and spend all this money and that gig doesn't work. It just didn't work for the, maybe some of the reasons we're talking about now. And they take them around the room to a, a long open warehouse that's got a bar at the end of it and the place is slamming. You know, it's tricky. Well, they did that with Mr. Scruff when they threw him at Revolver. 
they didn't really get him anywhere else. And when they threw Scruff at Revolver, you know, it was like, you know, well, that was an evolutionary place within itself. It did take it. But I suppose there's too many rules and too many rules everywhere with these people. If people want to play, they should be able to play. You know, Some of our best nights have been the, the secret, unannounced word of mouth for that exact reason where, you know, and people, you know, they might say it within an hour or, yeah, the word gets around. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, we did a series of secret parties where we didn't even announce who was playing at your venue and they were, yeah, packed. It was crazy. Were, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, Angie's flyer was like... Question marks, just, you know. We tried to put as many question marks question as marks. were in the name of the person's thing uh, to give people a hint, but yeah. it didn't work. They were huge. Listen, this guy interviewing has done more of this than any of us. So, you know, like he's sitting here asking the questions. He's done more clubs, booked more DJs than anybody else I've ever met. Thanks, Chris. I'll pay you for that one after. I know you will. Um, 50 bucks. Yeah, yeah, 50 bucks. Um, so, I guess, you know, there's obviously a bit of a, lull in the nighttime economy in Melbourne now and, you know, there's been some sort of things brought up there. What do we need to do? Like, how can we kind of move forward and, and kind of create something new and exciting and fresh that isn't kind of imposed by all these nanny state restrictions that, you know, promoters and clubs and artists and, you know, people who want to do stuff. I know there's a lot of free parties going on in the gardens and all that, which is great, um, you know, but like, what, what can we do as a city and as a community to kind of come together and sort of try and reboot what's going on? Anyone? <laughs> uh, I think we have to change how we think about land and property in Australia because often nightclubs like, emerge in building typologies like, you know, theatres. Theater, Metro, you mentioned before the theatre, inflation was a butter factory, Bastiani was a swimming pool, you know, Trezor, Bergheim, you know, they're all industrial buildings. And I think having local government and state government and also property owners be more generous and open up these spaces could be helpful and allow us, you know, more risk in these spaces as well. It's just one thing that could help. I reckon I couldn't agree with that more. You know, you look where Georgina is, she's right on the footpath next to the metro that used to hold like 2,000, 3,000 people coming through and they place all these res uh, restrictions around things, which it really makes it hard for the people who do invest. As I said before, none of this stuff is anything without the people who uh, invest. So without invest, you don't get. So, you know, I suppose that's a tricky one. One thing I want to say, you know, when you talk about all these clubs and everything around Melbourne, Going back to the, you know, 80s and 90s, most of those places were built and designed by the greats, Piero Gusweldi, a lot of amazing architects and creatives that were about in the early 80s that, you know, went into fashion or just went off and made cheese, I don't know, whatever they did. But there was amazing people that really did create amazing zoos, a bit like us at the lily pad. We created, you know, fusion and mad. The only rules we had is we didn't have any rules. So sometimes, you know, I think rules and sadly this wonderful city we do live in has become more and more and more and more about rules. And you can see that we've been through this pandemic thing or we're in it, whatever. Uh, but all of a sudden, you know, like everyone doesn't wear a mask everywhere anymore so everyone's business is running no one gives a shit anymore and i think that you know when i spoke to all my friends in london when they the pandemic and they chucked the mask away and moved on you know like people were just like crowd surfing through clubs and everything in five minutes i mean there's i don't know there's too many rules and restrictions with ideas and you're not allowed you know like uh, staging, there's insurances with everything. If you go into a place today to hang a polythene ball in the air with a, you know, like a curtain with a light on it, you know, you need scaffold rigging and all this stuff, all special stuff. So it costs more to talk about it than it does to make the money, you know? Zoo factor, you know. <laughs> zoo factor. <laughs> zoo factor. I, I, but you say it, it's totally about the people. So, so I think that, like, I, you know, I think that that governance, that council. But I, I also think that the big promoters. I don't think they're really in touch with like the communities that are like. They are with their bank balance, though. Pardon? They are with their bank balance. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I don't think like they're like, 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 like Duddy World Stage yesterday at Duke Street was sick, and then they did a after party. 
like at 24 moons, which looked sick on the gram. I don't know. I had to go home because I had to get up to go to this. Great timing uh, for this thing. Hey, so I had to stay sober, but that's all right. Sober partying. I did it yesterday. Yay me. Uh, and, but, but, you know, like, like, yeah, like there are all of these like sick things that are happening and, and they're just getting traction on these like side stages at, at major festivals but the but the parties that they're running like like Duddy World like Seafrim and like Paul Gorey like you know, like at Boiler Room for instance that just looked sick mm. uh, she know. killed it at uh, Hopkins Creek on Friday night as well yeah 100% Room, yeah. you know so like um, and it's so great that they're playing like sick um, like sets at festies um, but it's like like, where's the sort of weekly incubator for that? Like, and it's like, council, make that happen. Like, I just think there's a lot of places and let that, like, there's a lot of power that needs to be ceded to like those to which it directly affects and not be like, oh, how can I make this a financially beneficial situation for me? It's no like, fuck that, just, just, just make it happen. Like, yeah, surely they can subsidize it. I mean, Melbourne hasn't had any new nightclubs, late night licenses in, what, 15 years or something because they brought in the, the ban on late night licenses. So, you know. Yeah, and the focus is on safe live music. And I'm like, well, say, so you do like the live music and then everyone else gets cooked like until like seven, like kick ons is like so important. Like, you know. Well, I mean, like, they're all together. They're no, all the same thing, you know. They're, like, they're we one need, and the like, same. like, safe, safe kick ons. Fuck, like, you know, come on. Safe kick ons. That's like <laughs> pop up. The city of so Melbourne. Pop up kick on. We're getting a big pod. We're going to set up an office for this kick ons. This is it, isn't it? Let's get on the pick ons. Um, yes. So I mean, yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done in order for us to uh, to bring Melbourne back to its former glory. But uh, I, you know, have faith. I guess it'll happen. Georgina, what can you? you obviously, you can speak to some of the kind of real life. Um, challenges of running a venue, especially a small one in, in the middle of the city with the kind of uh, mass exodus of people from the city, you know, is there anything you can kind of talk well, to? Yeah, that was insane. But just listening on this now, like it's a total privilege to have this space with an existing late night license, you know, it's there. And in a way, you know, uh, like Con actually identified it and saw it was being underutilised. And, you know, it does take a lot of, like you said, investment, effort, you know, risk, <laughs> lots of things. Sleepless to, to actually hold on to it. Because if you lose those businesses, like, they, they're gone. Like, you've got to maintain everything to retain that licence. So, like, you, I think some of the other venues around with the late night or 24-hour licences, like they're kind of slowly dropping away. But yes, the yeah. challenge definitely has been losing a lot of international workers. Um, I, again, like the, sitting here listening to this, it really motivates me to fight to have that club space open as many nights as possible. And uh, like it's not actually easy. We don't... Like it's easy to keep it as a bar, but having upstairs, you uh, add on a lot more, you know, wages, uh, security costs, um, and the, there's risk, you know, it's late night, it's, like, it's, last night was the first night we've opened, like, it was over 700 days between parties, <laughs> and I sort of thought last night, oh, how did I used to do this all the time? Like, I just, I was dying, I was like, how did I do it? And I'm sure that you just get back to that. Um, but yeah, I like this has inspired me to sort of keep fighting for that. And that was in our first year. I think why we were popular too is like I was booking, like I felt like I was fighting for everyone. And I really felt pressure from crews and promoters trying to like edge in and like push out others and not being a DJ myself, like... I was in a good position to sort of not be there and side with like one crew. I was like, no, you get your turn, you get your turn. But um, the challenges are, yeah, a lot of, well, obviously pandemic, but it's stamina, like staffing, uh, it's, you know, alcohol in the workplace. Frosty. Keeping it all fresh, yeah. I can, I can agree with Georgina, you know, the, the thing about their bar compared to anyone else's bar, um, as a DJ, you don't really want someone telling you exactly what you're going to play 
style of music and what they want you to do. Uh, the evolution of being able, giving good DJs good freedom, enables in the night everything to be more versatile. And I know Frosty and our generation, we have always really played multi, multi-styled to kind of cater for every way. If the whole room ends up going, it, we're all on some swinging handbag house script, that's where we're at and we're staying there and we're not going to move. We'll, we'll move from styles to styles, whereas a lot of other places, that can really affect a lot of just one type of one-dimensional music. People want more than that today because of iPhones, you know, playlists. People want diversity. People's knowledge in music is far greater today. And whatever chapter, of whether it's punk, new wave, or any style of music that you're at, there's so many more diversities to it. And it's, it, that's the one thing that can help people today keeping that. You know, you think about Ransom's Late Show, one of the longest DJ shows going in Melbourne today, and it's about that diversity within the DJing. And I think that diversity is definitely the way forward, uh, not just one-dimensional for the whole night, and then you go on with a migraine. And have to turn up to M Pavilion to do a talk. <laughs> Um, were you going to say something this morning? Uh, I Go just on. wanted to raise, I guess, accessibility. Yeah. Like how many, how many clubs have a lift for wheelchair access? I can think of the TOF and I can think of Sub Club. I think and it's 24 like, Moons have one as well, don't they? Mm-hmm. 24 Moons have one as well. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. There's so not many. Like, they're just like really, that's just like this, yeah, just the idea of it, like, I guess, trying to make clubs accessible for everybody. Do you think that's sort of dictated by the space, though, in, in a way as yeah, well? No, like, well? I mean, something that, like no, Hudson Kisses, for instance, yeah, you know, no, it was 100%. impossible to put in a lift. But I think that's like, you know, clubbing has always been about occupying the infill. Like, we, you know, we occupy over, like, you know, like um, empty spaces or like, um, you know, non-spaces. And, I mean, it's got some of the best times I've ever had a... I actually think the gutter is the third space. <laughs> no, 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 true. Like hugs and kisses. Yeah. Like, like or anywhere. It's like you Smoking can, you can actually like spend a whole night, not pay entry, hang out in the gutter the whole night and just drink goon and have pingers. And like, you, and ostensibly like you've been at the club the whole night. So it's like the, like, you know, it's the, the gutter is the third space, but it's like, you can just rock up. Like you don't have to go up the stairs, but, but I think like, you know, yeah, we need our lofts and we obviously like, we need to make space where it's possible, but it's like, you know, the clubs, it's like maintaining those existing licenses that do have lifts and it's like, okay, who do we make that accessible to? It's like, let's not lose those. But we also understand at the same time that we can't put a bloody lift in colour, you know, right? It's just, it's just cost prohibitive. Yeah. Um, I think that's, we're running out of time. So is, uh, we might open it up for questions if there are any questions. Yeah. Oh, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for the lovely discussion. I'm here today because I didn't kick on to Revolver last night at 5am, pushing back against my friends uh, just to be here. My question is around the impact of COVID, both as spatial design as well as the mechanicals, such as heat recovery ventilation units for better airflow and public awareness in in these type of things, as well as the spatial design. So my question to the panel, how do you folks see the impact on COVID, both at the architectural, mechanical and the spatial design? A very interesting question because it wasn't that long ago that we weren't allowed to smoke indoors anymore. So you have a look at the change of what that actually really did. I don't know what it did. All they did was just put out the cigarettes and took them outside and that was the end of it. I'm sure Georgina would be the most, uh, probably the most qualified to be able to pass comment upon that kind of thing with ventilation, spaces, the way they were. I don't think anyone would put it this way after 15 drinks. 
who who really make who really really cares about the rules and the laws anyway you know what i mean but you can't you know i don't know but i know that probably georgina being a more modern designer and in that field than where i am today i've not worked with the covid spacing or anything to do with that i i think right some of the positives that have come out of that are just awareness and you know just because it's dark and people have had a lot of drinks, like, doesn't mean they want to sort of be suffocated. And I've, I, like, it's something that's just, I more quickly go, oh, let's, like, blast some air into this room or, you know, open the doors and the back so there's, like, a flow coming through. And that's just better anyway. But I definitely, uh, you know, you don't want to do it for like a, a COVID fear type thing, but I just think that the positive to come out or, or just for compliance, like actually some of the rules, uh, trying to maintain them. And I was on like many, um, you know, online meetings with government and local, the rules were changing one in two square metres, one in four, you've got a social distance, you can have, you know, and it was a lot of contradictory rules as well. And it was really tough to keep up and there was a lot of fear you know, put into place. I think we had one inspection and we got a letter saying you were in contravention to the Liquor Act because you had 12 people in the courtyard, you're only allowed 10. And like two or two of them were lining up to go to the toilet. But there was a real bully mentality at the time, which, you know, you were already suffering enough to sort of maintain the business. And that was a bit of a strange time. So now that we've sort of come through, we've got vaccines um, and I think people need, like, they do take personal responsibility for going out and being in places that are enclosed. But definitely, um, you know, I would, you know, not just drop everything. I'd definitely make improvements so that there is better ventilation. Um, yeah, it's great. Sanitizers available all the time. I think a lot of that we could have done with before. It helps well. with the so, sweat yeah. dripping from the ceiling, definitely. Apparently, <laughs> I've heard that these new sort of blue light. Um, and they do work. You know, these new, like, blue light... Uh, Sterilizer? Yeah. yeah. And those things are, like, being... I've heard of talk that they're going to be all thrown in the t toilet systems at Glastonbury and in big cloud, crowd movements. That stuff, I suppose, you know, what is COVID? It's like the invisible war. I mean, we don't know what it is or whether it, whatever it is, but um, it's a virus and maybe those kind of... Uh, like these machines, I, I've been in a room with one and you can put two of them in a room and people can be like smoking bongs or cigarettes all night long. And I tell you, you don't smell nothing. So there, I don't know what, the, there must be some new air cleaning machines that can clean up the stuff, you know? Mm, mm, yes. I'll, uh, I'll just go party in the metaverse and... Be done with well, it. I was going to talk about the metaverse, but I didn't want to go there. Basically, TikTok, <laughs> TikTok metaverse, where Floss on TikTok. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why I've not? I've got Angel in virtual reality, a highly detailed model <laughs> ready. Oh, good. Can I DJ from there next yes. time I play, so I don't have to drive into the city? Yes. In Fortnite, we could do like your bar in Fortnite. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, any other questions? No? Great. Okay. <laughs> thank you all for coming down and thank um, the panel, everyone. It was an amazing little chat and hopefully motivational to, uh, to get us going again. Um, yeah, thanks very much. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.